I'll bring you greetings from the High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and from our elders. And I bring you greetings from my family. I have a particular special place in my heart for undergraduates. Uh, we just took our 18-year-old to Oklahoma Baptist University, and, and so it's a joy to see so many young people here. I was actually up last night working on a paper with her via FaceTime. And so um, I'm, I'm very in tune to what's going on in the undergraduate level. Well, what I want to do is work through Daniel chapter 1 together. And um, as we do that, uh, let's ask for the Lord's help. Our Father in heaven, I confess my weakness. I confess my need of your grace and of your spirit. And together we confess our needs, our weaknesses, and we ask, would you show us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ from the pages of Scripture, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. If you turn over to Daniel chapter 1, let me encourage us to think about the reality that we face in this world. So, for example, the reality we live in is that as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we are strangers and aliens in this hostile world. The dilemma that we face is how do we endure faithfully in this foreign and hostile world without being conformed to this world? So the reality, this is not our home. We're heavenly citizens. The dilemma is we live in this world and we have to endure faithfully while all the hostile forces of this world are combating against us. This is actually the dilemma that Daniel and his friends face beginning in chapter 1. They're exiles living in a foreign and hostile land. But we would be wrong to think that the book of Daniel is really about Daniel and his friends. The book of Daniel is first and foremost about God and his sovereignty. As I read Daniel chapter 1 in just a minute, I want you to listen for the word gave The Hebrew word gave is repeated three times, and it gives us the emphasis of the chapter. So, for example, in verse 2, you'll hear that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In verse 9, you'll hear that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And in verse 17, you'll hear that God gave them Daniel and his friends learning and skill in all the the literature and wisdom. So the emphasis here is on God giving. It is on what God is doing for Daniel and his friends while they're living in a hostile and foreign land. This is the emphasis. And why would this be the emphasis? Because this is precisely what the exiles need to know, hear, and understand while they have been ripped away from their land and taken to a foreign and hostile land. They need to understand that while everything that they have known has been ripped away from them, that God is still in control. And this is precisely what we see here. Let me just give you my argument from this text up front, and then we'll just unpack this as we work through this. What what do Daniel and his friends need to know and understand? Because it's the very same thing that we need to know and understand as we navigate in this hostile world. The sovereign Lord who gives his rebellious people over to exile is also the sovereign Lord who gives his people the grace necessary to endure exile. That's the argument, just straight up. 
Let's read Daniel 1 and see if you can hear this emphasis with me. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God for us this morning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance And the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. As we live in this foreign and hostile world, we need to be reminded that our Lord is sovereign. It may appear to us that this world is falling apart. As you watch the news and you hear of wars and rumors of wars and and you hear of all the violence all around us and you experience personal tragedies in your life, we need to be reminded that the Lord is absolutely sovereign. 
And this is what Daniel and his friends needed to hear and needed to understand. Because what we see here in these first seven verses, it's that it was the sovereign Lord who gave them over into exile. It was God who delivered him into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. From verse 1, we know that the year was 605 B.C. This was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. This was the first year that Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, attacked it, and took away the first exiles. And so this is a historical account. This is something that has happened in history. The Bible is something that is written by God for us, and it is true. It is historical. But verse 2 explains that it was the Lord, the personal God of Israel, Yahweh, who gave them over into judgment. And the Lord, Yahweh, gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar. That's an, an archaism pointing back. If you remember the Tower of Babel, the place where everyone wanted to rebel against God and stand against God, shaking their fists. Babylon is a place that is against God brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Over 100 years before these events, the prophet Isaiah told us this would happen. God warned Israel that this would happen. In Isaiah 39, verses 1 through 7, after King Hezekiah showed the Babylonian emissaries everything in his treasury, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, Hezekiah, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." This is exactly what's taking place in Daniel chapter 1, just as Isaiah prophesied. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. More than likely, Daniel and his friends had become eunuchs. In fulfillment of Isaiah 39, they had been stolen from Jerusalem and brought to serve in the king's court. Both of the royal family your own sons from your own loins will be taken away captive from the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar took the best of the young men Verse 3 says they were of royal blood. Verse 4, they were beautiful. Verse 4, they were skilled. And, And these youths were to be indoctrinated in the ways of their new country, the new nation, the new government, under the new king for three years. Listen to verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Do you understand what's going on here? They've been taken away from their land, from the place where God promised to dwell with them. They've been brought to a new land, and for three years, they're going to be indoctrinated in the Babylonian ways. They're going to be conformed to Babylon. They were to learn the literature and the language, verse 4. In verse 5, they were to eat the food and the drink 
the wine of Babylon. And after three years, they were to be presented before the king for evaluation. And in verses six and seven, we learn that among these youths are Daniel and his friends. Verse six, it says that they were, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Four Hebrew young men that have Hebrew names that point to the Hebrew God, Yahweh, and the loyalty to their God, Yahweh. And the chief of the eunuchs, verse seven, gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. You understand what's going on here? Not only are they stolen away and are they to be indoctrinated in the language and the culture and the food and the diet, even their names that point to their God are changed to names that point to the Babylonian gods. This is full immersion into a different culture to indoctrinate them into their culture. So the question that emerges from this text naturally is, how can they remain faithful to Yahweh? How can they continue to keep covenant? The laws of the old covenant were meant to keep them distinct from the surrounding nations, distinct in their worship. They worship only one God, distinct in their government. God was their king, distinct even in their diet from the surrounding nations. And so the the text forces us to wrestle with the reality, how will these young men remain faithful in this hostile land? Now in this foreign and hostile land, the government wants them to forget their God and adopt new gods. It's what we'll see throughout the rest of Daniel, isn't it? In this foreign and hostile land, they're pressured to forget their customs and language for a new culture. And in this foreign and hostile land, they're pressured to forget their own ethic and adopt a new one. Ever since Adam and Eve, God's people have been in exile looking for a home. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they shook their fists at God and said, you're not going to tell me what to do, God. I'm going to decide for myself what's right and wrong. God exiled them from the place of his presence. After Jerusalem finally shook their fists at God and said, God, you're not going to tell us what to do. We're going to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. God exiled them. We're told even in the book of Daniel that this exile is going to last 70 years. But even in the book of Daniel, Daniel is warned in Daniel chapter 9 that even after the return, 70 years later, the exile will actually not be over. So it's no surprise that we as Christians, the people of God under the new covenant, are also called exiles. Peter, writing to the Christians in Asia Minor, says we are elect exiles of the dispersion. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, we are sojourners in exile in this foreign and hostile world. And Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. We have more in common with Daniel in this situation than we do with Israel in the land under King David in prosperity. As you read the book of Revelation, another apocalyptic book similar to Daniel you'll learn that the powers of this world, the beast, the tyrannical government, the false prophet, corrupt religion, and the prostitute, the defiled city or culture are all at work under the power of the dragon, Satan, to seek to corrupt and defile God's people, the church. 
This is the world that we live in. The powers of this world want us to forget our God and adopt their gods. The powers of this world want us to forget our biblical customs and traditions and adopt their customs and traditions, even their language. The powers of this world want us to forget our biblical ethic and adopt their ethic, the ethic of this world. Do you see how much like Daniel's world we're living in today. We are literally being indoctrinated to a foreign land, a foreign culture, a foreign language, a foreign ethic, and foreign gods. And so Daniel's question is our question. How will we endure faithfully? It's the same question. Will we endure faithfully unto the Lord in holiness during our exile, or will we compromise our faith and be conformed to this world? And beloved, this is an important question for us because you who are young are living in a culture that is is going full throttle to gain you and to win your hearts and to indoctrinate you into its ways. And I, I I have five daughters from 28 to 16 years old. And by God's grace, we have a great relationship and we're able to talk about things. And so I'm now gonna speak to you as a father because these are the conversations that we have in our home. I mean, just think about, think about the entertainment we take into our eyes and ears and minds. Think about how we're being indoctrinated by this world just by the music that we listen to, just by the, the shows that we watch on TV or, or the movies you watch in the theater. I mean, just think about everything that's on Netflix and this entertainment that we're choosing to to bring into our minds through our ears and our eyes is forming us and molding us to to the ethic and to the idols and to the customs of this world, even the books that we read. So one of the things that we ask in our home is, is what we're taking into our minds for entertainment, and please don't misunderstand me, I'm not some old prude, I... I love movies. I I really love movies. And I struggle with this myself. And I have to continually ask myself, is what I'm about to turn on, what I'm about to Netflix, what I'm about to listen to, is it encouraging my holiness? Or is it conforming me to this world? Consider the culture that we live in. Are we so indoctrinated by Babylon that we have bought into our culture's view of success, our culture's view of wealth, our culture's view of prosperity, our culture's view of right and wrong? Just one example, look at human sexuality. Christians, professing Christians, believing gospel Christians are confused as to what to think about biblical sexuality. Well-meaning, well-intentioned young people are wondering if it's okay to embrace homosexuality so long as people are monogamous. I mean, this is the kind of confusion that is rampant within evangelical culture. I'm not talking about the outside world, but this didn't come from God. Are we, as we navigate this culture as Christians, are we maintaining holiness or are we slowly being conformed to Babylon? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Without realizing it, we have allowed ourselves to be indoctrinated by Babylon, and we have forgotten the holiness of the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to Peter's charge in 1 Peter 2. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed, says Paul, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how can we endure? See, this is why Daniel was written, for Israel and for us. We need to remember that the same God who gave his people over to exile is the same God who sustains his people during exile. Look at verses 8 through 21. Here in verse 8, Daniel resolved to remain faithful and keep covenant, not defiling himself. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel is in exile. He's under a foreign authority, and he submits to this hostile government. He submits to these hostile authorities, and in humility, he asks for permission to be relieved of the demands And in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel asks the chief of eunuchs and the chief of the eunuchs says, look, I like my head. I don't want to lose my head to the king. So so I'm not going to make that request for you. So what does Daniel do? He doesn't say, okay, I I tried, God. I really tried. He continues to pursue holiness. And in verses 11 through 14, we see that God gave Daniel favor. Look at verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And notice his request. It is a humble request. These are foreign authorities, and in humility, he submits to these governing authorities, and he says, look, let's, let's, just, let's just try it out. Ten days. You're supposed to observe us for three years. Ten days is not going to hurt you. It's not going to harm you. If you would just allow us for ten days to eat according to what we request, then at the end of those ten days, if you observe us and we're somehow different, then we'll eat your food and we'll drink your wine. But just observe us for ten days. And this is what he, what he does. Verse 13, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And look how God blessed them. In, in apparent supernatural ways, verse 15, and at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance or fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. I mean, 10 days of eating just vegetables, somehow they appeared better. They appeared fatter. This is, this is an apparent supernatural kind of situation here. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were able to drink and gave them vegetables. God also gave Daniel and his friends the learning and skills necessary to bless their captors. Verse 17, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. A few years later, 
Nebuchadnezzar will go around a second time into Jerusalem and take even more captives back to Babylon. Somehow these captives begin to think, okay, this exile is not going to last very long. So Jeremiah has to write a letter to them. Jeremiah writes a letter to them while they're in Babylon. And in Jeremiah 29, we we hear Jeremiah pleading with them, this is not going to be a short exile. This is not going to be a short thing. He says, you settle in, you get married, you build houses, and you seek the welfare of the city because in the welfare of the city, they will find their welfare. You will find your welfare. This is exactly what Daniel and his friends do. They settle into the city. They serve in the royal court, and they bless their enemy. They bless their captors. And in his grace, God equipped them for this very task. And so God gave Daniel and his friends favor before all the people, including the king of Babylon. Look at verses 18 through 20. At the end of the time, remember it was three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Isn't that interesting? Their names have been changed, but the narrator chooses their Hebrew names. I think it's to emphasize the fact that these were faithful Hebrew young men. Verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. The very God that gave them over into exile is the very God that gave them the necessary grace to endure faithfully in exile. Verse 21 is interesting. It it may seem like an afterthought, but it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. If you know your Old Testament history, you'll know that King Cyrus came to the throne in 539 BC and offered an edict releasing the Hebrews to return to the land, essentially ending the exile. You see what's going on here in chapter 1? From 605 to 539 B.C., Daniel endured faithfully to the end of the exile. Daniel outlasted all the Babylonian kings. Technically, the exile ended in 539 B.C., But remember, this is not the end of the real exile. This is only the end of the physical exile. They will continue in exile. In Daniel, we learn it will be 70 weeks or 77s. And so we too are in exile. Because we're exiles in this world, we too are to endure faithfully in Babylon. As this world seeks to conform us to its gods, its laws, and its ways, How can you and I remain faithful? How can we remain faithful in the midst of all the competing pressures and even persecution? That's why Daniel was written. It was written for us and for our help. From Daniel, we learn that the sovereign Lord who gave his people over in exile, he's the one who gives his people sufficient grace to endure faithfully in exile. But in Daniel, we also learn that he has promised to give something else that toward the end of the 77s, he's going to give an anointed one. And this anointed one is the one that's going to resolve the issue of the exile. It's fascinating that in Matthew chapter 1, you have a royal genealogy from 
Abraham to David, 14 generations, from David to the deportation, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Jesus, 14 generations. It is a royal genealogy meant to point us to the reality that Jesus is the promised anointed one that's going to come, and he is the answer to the exile. He is the one who has come from God. He is the one who was given by God to his people to save them from their sins and to return them from the exile. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to end the exile by living a life of perfect obedience, crossing every T, dotting every I of the old covenant, fulfilling it in order to receive all its blessings, but also hanging on a tree to receive all its curses. And God raised him from the dead on the third day, as if to say, my beloved son, I receive your substitute life and I receive your substitute death. And Jesus inaugurated a new covenant for the restoration of his people in order to bring his people back from the exile. It is Jesus who wandered in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, retracing Israel's steps to undo what Israel had done. It was Jesus who came out of Egypt in order to bring his people through the exodus and bring us back to the place of God's presence. And Jesus has inaugurated this new covenant. And this is the grace that we need. The promises of the new covenant, forgiveness of sin, a new heart, God's spirit in us, and a personal knowledge of God. We endure faithfully as strangers and aliens in this foreign and hostile world by faith in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us in a new covenant. We have been given new hearts, beloved. We have been empowered to obey. God is with us in Christ by his spirit. So how do we endure in this world as exiles? Just share three thoughts of exhortation as we close. Number one, by faith in Christ and in the power of the Spirit, rest in the sovereignty of God over history. Rest in the sovereignty of God over history. This is a God who controls history from 605 BC to 539 BC to the coming of his son. And this is a God who sustains all of history in his own hands. And he has handed all of history over to his son. And Jesus is unfolding this history until that appointed day, which we're told in Daniel chapter 12. God, who announced the judgment of Jerusalem with the hands of Babylonians a hundred years before, is the God who announced that he would raise up Cyrus a hundred years plus years before, is the God who declared that the exile would only last 70 years, and he is moving all history toward his appointed, and we can rest in that fact. We can endure understanding that God is in control. No matter what this world looks like around us, God is in control and he is moving history through his son to his appointed end and the consummation of the kingdom. Because God is sovereign over history, we can rest in the fact that he will bring history to its appointed end. But number two, by faith in the power of the Spirit, by faith in Christ and in the power of the Spirit, rest in the sovereignty of God over your history, over your circumstances. It's one thing to think about, okay, God is sovereign over every circumstance out there. 
But it's another thing to understand God is sovereign over every circumstance in my life. He is sovereign over every single event that I have to go through. Contrary to what it appears like, God is in control. And this is how Jesus encourages the church in Revelation. In Revelation 2 and 3, we see these seven churches that are facing all these great difficulties. And in chapter 4 of Revelation, John is invited to come up to the throne room where he sees God. And it's essentially God saying, look, John, as you look from your perspective, it looks like it looks like the world is out of control, but now I want you to see things from my perspective. I'm on my throne, and I'm in complete control. And in chapter 5, God hands everything over to Jesus, his son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, same tribe as Daniel. And Jesus is the one who unseals the scrolls, the, the history of humanity, salvation history as it unfolds to its appointed and I don't know what you're facing today, but sometimes it feels like no one is in control. Sometimes it feels like your life, your personal life, your personal circumstances are falling apart. And just because we believe in a sovereign God does not mean life is going to be easy. And it doesn't mean things are always going to work out like we want them to work out. But whatever happens, we can rest in the fact that God is sovereign in whatever we experience has already been sifted through the hand of a sovereign God. And even though we don't understand it, and even understand what we face, we can rest in the reality that God is sovereign over history and over our history. And then finally, number three, by faith in Christ and in the power of the Spirit, rest in the sovereignty of God over your own salvation, over your own salvation. The God who saved you will keep you. Things may look really bad right now from our perspective, but he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He has prepared an inheritance for you in heaven. And this is how Peter encourages the Christians in Asia Minor in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. He says, we have a living hope. And even the suffering that we face, God is not wasting. He is using it to conform us to the image of his son, to strengthen our faith so that even as we go through the fire of suffering, we will look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And when we understand that he who is sovereign over history, he who is sovereign over our circumstances, is he who is sovereign over our own salvation and that he will keep you that he will never let you go, then we understand that we are following Jesus into suffering and even death, but we're also following Jesus into resurrection and into glory. We can trust in his promises and we can heed his warnings. So as we go through this life and face these difficulties, we can understand that our God is sovereign and he is at work through his promises and through his warnings to persevere us and to sustain us. And so we walk by faith and not by the sight of our circumstances. We live in a foreign and hostile world. And I just wanna leave you with these questions. If you profess faith in Christ, do you look more like Babylon or do you look more like the heavenly Jerusalem? Don't be afraid. The very God who gave his rebellious people over in judgment is the same God who gives his faithful people sufficient grace to endure. So let us walk by faith and not by sight in the sovereign God who has given us Christ 
and given us his spirit and given us his word and given us his church, that together we may endure faithfully. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We are now marching to Zion. We are returning to the heavenly Jerusalem in exile. Lord Jesus, we await your return where you will put an end to this age and bring in the new age, where you will put an end to suffering and even death. And until then, would you grant us the grace to rest in the sovereignty of God by faith and to pursue holiness in the power of your spirit as we rest in your word and walk with your church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.